All right. Welcome, everybody, to Probate Mastery Weekly Group Coaching. I'll go back to last week and offer you guys an apology. I, I, as you, if you don't know, I'm living in my fifth wheel home office, and that comes with surprises, and it's a bit of a dynamic lifestyle. So last week was uh, brakes on my friend's rig that I was with. This week is axles on mine. So we're in Idaho at a dealership waiting to uh, get axles made. So I used all my, my real estate negotiating tactics on RV dealers yesterday. But I apologize for having a gap and, and missing last week and uh, appreciate your all's patience. David's had a pretty exciting week. I know we're going to talk about that. And Miriam, if you're here, Miriam got uh, three listings this month alone with what she she's learned from Probate Mastery. So Dave, tell us about your week, man. It sounds like you're having a good one. Yeah, I just got the notification that we have our having a state with 60 some properties. They're getting rid of 40 of them. It wasn't a probate that I pro- prospected. But through everything that we learned, she was a neighbor of a house in uh, downtown. And I called her for at least a year with no response. She never picked up the phone. But I knew we had the right number because the landscaper guy would come by, said, this is her number, call her. And then we looked up the list of properties that the estate owned in the beginning. And one of her houses that we drove by down here, the door was jarred open. So I took a picture of her and texted to her and then she responded. So there's an idea for you. From that, that was October of 2020, so last year, last October. Until today, we've closed three of the state properties. I have three more under contract, but I've wholesaled all of them and made 81000 so far. It's projected 130 in wholesale fees right now off of, that's just six properties. There's another agent helping her out that she's buying some of them too, but I'll probably get 15 of them, which is a blessing. And we're going through all the land right now. That's, yeah. So Dave, for anyone who's not familiar with, with your story, I think most people probably are, but David's obviously a, a broker and an investor, and he's able to break seven digits by using, you know, by spanning both sides of the industry. So he's getting the off-market business as well as the on-market, if that's what's best for the family. But uh, for anyone who hasn't heard David speak, if you haven't watched any of his videos and stuff, tell us, tell them, Dave, how you built your buyer's list, how you market those and get them sold. And also talk a little bit about your, the way you structure. So, cause a lot of times people are questioning like, you know, I want to buy houses, but my broker says I can't and tell them how you separate your investor activity from your broker activity and kind of what a deal, what those deals are looking like today. Yeah. So you go through a phase of maturity through this. So you don't first, you start off with no list of investors or you have a few people that want to pay you 250 bucks per day. And that's where I was in 2014. I had some investors that would say, Hey, if you find me a deal, I'll list it with you for 1%. So to me, I was like, all right, that's cool. I needed a listing, so I'd take 1%. That's like 2012, 2013, 2014. I'm still working retail business. And then I found you guys. I was looking at the probate stuff because I stumbled on a few probates. And I, you know, you start getting that idea, like you said in your course, that you're like, damn, I didn't know these things existed. So I listened to you guys for probably a year and a half before I even paid for anything. Or whenever y'all started, I was in the front end of it. So through that, I built an investor list of people out of state or mainly people that are buying and holding because that's what you recommended. Uh, you separate your investment. Yeah, let's talk about how you did it. So a landlord list is one of the best lists you could ever have. And I built mine organic through yep. having conversations, asking title companies like who, you know, who owns more than 12 properties, who's buying more than one a month and yep. just started to meet all the the multi-parcel property owners in my market. Is that how you did it today? Uh, sort of, but I used to call for sell by owners and expireds and uh, for rent by owners. 
So I've gotten most of my people yeah, from there or like just it. people that bought a property from me through the short sale error. So I'm still selling houses with those guys. Another way I've done done really well is calling the the property management company to serve real estate mm -hmm. investors. And yeah. it's, you know, like you're, it's a very different property management company than the one that, you know, that, that serves the nicest neighborhood, you know, the property management companies that tend to specialize in large, you know, have large portfolios of investor owned property. They can be really good to connect you with those folks. Mm -hmm. Some other, another idea. Uh, one idea that, that I've shared here, it worked well for me and Dave, I'm curious if you ever tried this. If not, I'd like for you to is building relationships with the commercial loan officers at community banks. A lot of folks don't realize that investors who are further along in, in their career are using community bank financing at a scale. And those loan officers, you know, they've written 20, 30, 40 notes for some of these, these investors. And they're happy to connect you because if you find things, if you find inventory to sell to their client, then they get to write a loan and they get paid. So it's an easy referral to get. Okay. No, I haven't, but I'll look into it. That's the stuff I like to do. So yeah, it's good. Yeah. My, yeah. my clients I serve now are investors. I rarely, I, I was the seven to eight listings a month, probably two years ago. Now I'm happy doing, I'm happy doing one wholesale a month, to be honest with you. I'm averaging 22 to 38,000 wholesale. I've got money in my bank account now. I mean, it's not like I'm chasing the tail of uh, trying to pay for listings, pay. The most expensive thing I pay for now is data. I'm not really into going to the courthouse and yeah. getting the information. I will pay all the leads and then I'll match it up with the success data, if that's okay if I mention that, or other resources. And I'll just call them. But back to the investors, it's the, the best investors I have on my list, I've narrowed it down to only the buy and hold people now. I will not sell to a flipper. I have to know them, but I won't sell. Wholesalers won't make it on my list and flippers really won't make it on my list because they're paying, they got to pay 70% or less. These flip, these whole, these um, buy and holds, I'm getting 85 to 89% and buying a house at 50%. It's incredible. And you cannot beat that. And you don't need a whole lot yeah. of deals. You don't need to be the 100 year, 100 transaction year guy. I mean, I'm in shorts and a t-shirt. It's great. He just happens to be the tile next to you. But a friend of mine, Gary Nash is here. And Gary, thanks for being here, man. I know I owe you a call. I've been having some challenges on the road, but. Gary might change your mind on what you just said of, of, you know, maximizing profit selling flippers. So what he teaches, Gary has a course where he teaches investors how to maximize your exit strategy. So how to use design changes, architecture, and smart negotiating with and management of contracts to actually squeeze every, you know, squeeze profit out of the deal that most people would never see. So Gary, I'm really curious to hear if you have a rebuttal, like that David's resistance to sell the flippers, what advice would you give him as someone who has steady deal flow? You know, how does he find that right person like you that will actually pay a fair, that price, like almost a landlord price, because you know how to unlock the profit when most other fix and flip investors don't. Yeah. You know, I was excited when he said that he was selling to uh, just buy and hold guys. So I was like, golly, you're just leaving a whole bunch of money out there on the table. And uh, I, I'm sitting out here, uh, by the way, this is uh, my view. I don't know if you can see that or not. That's awesome. I'm in Santa Monica right and Oh, uh, you're on your trip. I forgot. I, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So my girlfriend, she went to go spend some time with her son. So I thought I'd jump in on this call just to uh, say hi and 
But yeah, as far as these other investors go, uh, a lot of uh, these guys that I'm meeting, they don't really see the opportunities in these properties. They always just look at the property as it sits and their whole you know, game plan is built around that and not really built around the opportunity that, you know, it may present itself. Years ago, I did this renovation. I used to own a construction company and there was this high roller out of Middleburg, Virginia, which is like one of the richest communities in the country. And he bought this property and he had it for two years. And after two years, he found out that he could actually cut that property up into 30 parcels. And I was thinking to myself, how in the hell do you buy a property and not know that before you go in? And he just got kind of luck of the draw, but he really kind of missed a huge opportunity earlier on when he could have, you know, after two years. I mean, think about, you know, the cash flow that 30 properties on one deal could have generated and the money that he missed over time. Now, he obviously made a killing after he found that out. But so, you know, to, to bridge that over to the real estate investor, I bought a property in Norfolk, Virginia, and I wouldn't say it was in a war zone, but you could hear the gunfire from there. And it was a four-bedroom dysfunctional two-bath where you had to go through one bedroom to get one bath and the other, the kitchen was messed up. And anyway, I went in and redrew the house and just repositioned it. I paid 40000 for it. And all in furniture and everything, I converted that place to a six-bedroom Airbnb slash boarding house cash cow. With, I think I was like about 115000 all in. I just refinanced it. I, I think I got like $165,000 out of it. Plus, now my mortgage payment's about $1,000 a month. I'm generating about $3,500 a month in cash flow, positive cash flow. So, and every other investor that I talked to, I actually tried to wholesale the deal before I you know, put the contract on it. And I was telling people, and they just said, oh, you're nuts. And you'll never make any money off of that deal. It's in a terrible location. And you know, I just said, you know, you know, fuck it. I'm, I'm going to just, you know, go in there and, and change the layout and turn it into the, you know, something that nobody else saw. And so those are the kinds of opportunities that I think a lot of properties present themselves. And, you know, a lot of times if you can just squeeze out, you know, an extra bathroom, you'll raise the value of that property exponentially. And this That's is awesome. Like that, so I just want to recap. You you risk forty thousand dollars cash to make a hundred and fifty thousand dollar equity to, to deposit a hundred and fifty thousand dollars in equity. You've got a thousand dollar a month debt service and a three thousand dollar net monthly cash flow, right? Yes. Yes. All right. So forty grand at risk to make a hundred and fifty thousand dollar profit and an extra thirty six thousand dollars a year in perpetuity. That's a great deal. Now. What I wanted to get to, how the hell do we find you in, in a relative market? So Gary is teaching as fast as he can, teaching real estate investors his tactics and, and techniques all across the country. It's one at a time, right? Uh, I mean, it, it's unfortunately not everybody has the training and the experience that Gary does. So how do we find the Gary Nash in Des Moines, Iowa? 
in Fort Worth, Texas. What's your advice for how we can find a higher level of fix and flip investor who has a skill set similar to yours or, or, you know, or has taken your class? How do we connect with those people? I would say that the flipper is, you know, is a hot market. Or if you can you know, get the wholesale guy, you know, it's, you know, the average wholesale guy doesn't know how to do this. I almost think that if you could either see the opportunities yourself and list that property to a flipper or present that property to a flipper or a wholesaler as what it could be. Because if you could look at that property and say, hey, this is not only this property, but this is what it could be, then you can entice a, a larger market. So I think it's really- I might regret up- this. I may be creating a mess for both of us, Gary, but I'm going to shoot from the hip here. What if everybody who's a CPE, everybody who's taken probate mastery, what if we had a license to your course where they could actually offer it to their buyer's list for free and, and then pay a licensing fee? Is that something, because well, what I'm thinking, I'm just thinking outside of the box, guys. Like if, imagine if each of us had Gary's course, all that information that's in his head that allowed him to do that deal he just told you about. And what if we could send an email to our buyers list or to a cold list of buyers that were, you know, investors that we're trying to build a relationship with and offer them a $5,000 course for, you know, and it, it's going to come at an expense to your business because we have to pay Gary a licensing fee. But how, how many people can see value in that if you train your investor base to be more profitable and to, to pay a higher price for your deals? Can you see where you get a return on that investment? And oh, absolutely. Gary, sorry if I shot from the hip, man, we didn't discuss this, but that's something I see like, Dave, you could get Gary's course and give it to your, you know, go to the, go to those bankers and say, Hey, you know, who, who are, who are your top builder, builder flippers and, and, you know, meet with them and then say, Hey man, I met this guy in, in a group that I'm in, in a mastermind. He actually, you know, he paid 40 grand for a house, made 150 on the cash out refi and 3000 a month. And he taught, he's got a course teaching you how to do it. What's your email? I'll send you a copy for free. And that comes as a marketing expense to David, Gary, you know, but you're going to have a higher qualified investor as, as, you know, as a customer. I think that's yeah, a great gonna, idea. They're going to have to be determined to go through We need it. to figure out how to do that, Gary. Yeah, that's good. Rosie, I, I, I could see you pushing the hell out of that idea. I can see Rosie having every investor in Austin, like, like holding them accountable too. Yeah, you know, hi Gary, hi. I'm Rosie from Austin. I, we actually bought a property close to Lake. It's a foreclosure. So we literally acquired it at a loan value. We stopped the foreclosure and stuff. So we acquired it at 294. And if we did nothing to it, it's a half an acre lot, right? If we did nothing to it and just stuck the sign back in, it was 485. Okay. But it was next to the boat ramp, Lake Austin, all that good stuff, right? So you got now lifestyle there. So we actually rehabbed it, spent 30K on it. We're getting rental calls at around $3,500 a month. And we're actually choosing to not do that, but instead go Airbnb route that Gary is saying, because you got bored there, you know? And actually we are thinking about putting a tiny house on the other four acre lot and cutting a fence out of it. Run Airbnb out of two units. Just put a tiny house on one side. Both have boat ramp access to Lake Austin. Now cash flow to properties uh, in the same na- in the same half an acre lot. So we have our conversation going on with HOA. Should we subdivide the lot or can we put two? And we're trying to run the septic system tank. And of course, I'm not working alone. I partnered up with someone. 
who is smart into construction. So Gary, the question is, can we refinance STRs like short-term rentals? Like I know investor cash out loan can happen if we have a, a rental proof on it. Can we do refinance by showing Airbnb? What? Yeah, at least six, six months of rent roll. Yeah, I think if you have, yeah, I was going to say my experience with the short-term rentals is that the lenders don't like short-term rentals. Uh, so I would never disclose it as a short-term rental. I would just say that it's a rental okay. and I have six months of revenue and this is what I'm generating. And mm. I would just leave it at that and don't, I would just not mention, I would just say it's a rental. I love it. I love it. And we picked a similar property for $60,000. And the only thing is all the comps that have one and a half bath stop at 9,500. It's like all in the outskirts. I always wanted to own a small $1,200 square footage property. If you convert that into a full bath, the resale value goes all the way to 145, 155. So we ran the numbers on it and we acquired it for 60 and all that good stuff. And uh, we are planning on holding it for six months then do a cash, do the delayed financing, which means now that I bought the property for 60, I added 35, I'm 95, right? But I have right. a full bath now. So the new value is 155. So taking the appreciation into the down payment and cashing out all my loan and running it as a rental. So that's my next. Yep. My question on that one property that if you yeah. could build a smaller rental unit on that same property, could you subdivide that lot? Yeah, you're absolutely right. If we build another house on it, we're trying to go the least investment route to start cash flowing right away. We, I, I'm definitely in agreement with you that when we eventually liquidate the property, it's probably a good idea to subdivide the property and have two quarter acre lots and build two houses on it. And I would suggest that you do split your parcel, do your sub, subdivide your parcel before you do your refi. So when they okay. do the cash out refi, it's on that subject oh, property. And then you're left over with the, the vacant parcel. Yeah. Maybe it's a good idea to just rent out one side, uh, you know, and get the cash out refinance done and then put another property on the other side and then Airbnb out of that and eventually do both Airbnb. Oh, I was going to ask you uh, if, now what is your intention? Is it just an investment property? I want to, I feel like this is a good buy and hold. Um, okay. I think what I would do is I would just make the one unit, the rental, sub, Chad said, make the subdivision, cut that in half. <laughs> then I would refi the property that you have renovated mm -hmm. uh, because the value is probably going to be very similar to what it is right now. Yeah. And then you end up, then you end up with a lot free and clear. And then <clears throat> that could be your own personal property. Or if you needed the cash, I would just dump the cash and let that pay for the, that rental get as much out of that to a developer, I, I would go more towards somebody who builds houses because they'll pay a premium for that lot. And because mm -hmm. they're, they're looking for product and get that cash out of it. That's, those are the two plays that I'd be looking. Okay. So there's one more, there's one more Rosie. And, and I was going to propose. So, well, there's two more. I have two more ideas. One is the same thing. Go to the builder, but offer them, the lot, once it's subdivided and it's not in the lien from your cash out refi, will not, it'll be free and clear. It has nothing to do with it. You don't need the bank permission. Go to a builder who, who has success on the lake and say, listen, I'm, I want to give you this lot for free for equity in the project. So mm -hmm. I'll form a Texas mm -hmm. LLC where you and I will be general partners and 
uh, we establish a basis value for the lot, the land value. We established a project budget. And then my equity is the percentage of land value right, divided okay. by project. Mm -hmm. That's your equity. In the, and then go pour yourself a drink and, and sit on the deck next door and watch him do all the work. In the interim, the other idea that I had, if this lot lies well, like if it's relatively flat, you can, there are, and, and as long as if there aren't restrictions, like covenants and restrictions could kill this idea, but there are now like Airbnb for camping apps. And one is called the Dirt, D-Y-R-T. The other is uh, Campendium. Uh, Hip Camp is another. But I have friends who are, are buying raw land and paying it off in three to four months and then realizing 30 to 40% internal rates of return. There's no electricity. There's no water. They just put a damn tent site, a picnic table, and, you know, some rules up. So in the interim, if you're sitting on land that's in a prime vacation spot, there are sprinter vans all over Austin because all those people are leaving California, coming to Austin. You can rent a sprinter van pad on a lake for probably 60 to 80 bucks a night. Hold on, so you're saying that I can give my land for Airbnb camping option? Like, I like if the HOA doesn't mind, like I can yep. make it available for people to pay me Airbnb to camp out there? Oh my God. Yeah, check God. out the app. And then the other is Hip Camp, H-I-P-C-A-M-P, and Campendium, C-A-M-P-E-N-D-I-U-M. Those are essentially competing platforms that are basically the Airbnb of dry camping. Now it's more and more stuff is showing up there. You can get RV pads and lots of different things. But my friend Cody bought a piece of desert out near uh, Joshua Tree National Park. It was paid off in three and a half months. And she's making about $3,000 a month on a little patch of desert that she paid like $15,000 for. So if you have prime, if you're in, in that market where there's a lot of money and a lot of sprinter vans and conversions and little airstreams, as long as the covenants and restrictions will, won't prevent you from doing that, you could cash flow like crazy until he starts building. And then you just pull it down, like move your picnic table and let him build the house. So the, the best strategy for this might be a combination of all the things we've discussed. Like you could really squeeze every dollar out of it that way. Uh, no, I'm thinking like we can subdivide right away and then refinance one side and then work on highest and best use on the vacant lot. You know, figure out maybe just how the cash flow now, don't spend a dime on it. And once it's time to liquidate, then do equity partner on it with a builder or find a builder partner who will build, a, build with you. You know, here's the reason I want to buy and hold this. So this is still a raw area close to, you know, lake where, you know, those trailer homes are, airstreams are, and right in between somebody built a 3,500 square footage mansion home. So those homes are selling for 1.2, 1.7 million. And we just, I was like, this is land alone gold, you know, like just hold on to the land. And as things build out and build out, you got special HOA access to Lake Austin. That alone is worth something when people can Airbnb, you know, you can give them a key to access the boat ramp area. So I'm certainly going to look into it. Yeah. You might want to check that load, that mm -hmm. the restrictions on that lake access, because mm -hmm. if it's only for the one lot and you cannot get it, then you might be able to get an easement, you know, so it's a shared access for that so that you don't, so you don't miss that because, but I've looked into that as well. But I love that. I, I, I love that idea, Chad, because right now, I mean, you go to any campground, I mean, you know, with the COVID it's, this is a new market and Chad, you're brilliant for uh, coming up with that because the, you know, it, and of course, Chad's traveling across the country and, yeah. 
I don't know, Chad, are you having a hard time finding places to park that thing? I put $6,000 worth of solar panels on the roof, so I, got, I take it wherever I want to go. Now, I'm in BLM Forest Service, but yes, before I had, before I was completely self-contained, like as an off-grid rig, it's a pain in the ass, uh, especially for somebody like me who hates planning and scheduling. Yeah, that I'm, my mind is, is massive. My mind is just rolling now. It's like, golly, you know, what a market. Because you could, you know, there's so many people out there that they can't get into these places and they don't know, they don't have solar panels. They, they don't know where to go, you know, and that land also, how much would it cost to put a temporary electric service? You know, whenever you build a house, you call the power company and you say, hey, I, you know, you set a pole up and you put a panel up there, you get it inspected, you know, for less than 5,000 bucks. You could have service provided and you could probably, you know, have four or five campers on that little lot getting 60 bucks a night. Hell yeah. With power, you probably get a little bit more. Just saying. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. If you provide hookups, like at least 30 amp, and especially if you have a septic, if you go ahead and put in the, you know, let's just say you put in a five bedroom septic for, for a big lake home, that's, <clears throat> you know, you're going to, you're going to be doing that eventually anyway. And that is, you know, you'll be changing it from a land use of raw land. So you'll have a depreciable asset on it because you had, you had capital expenditures. So it can actually help you be, it will be more beneficial from a tax standpoint than holding raw vacant land. But you could also drive your rates probably to 60 to $80 a night year round in that market. Cool. What a fun conversation. So I saw Miriam Cruz was here for a bit. I think she's gone now. Sorry, Miriam. We were in the middle of transaction engineering. Fed, I sleep. Fed's comment. So Gary, if, if everybody gets your course, Fed has requested we all get cigars too. Yeah, La Flor Dominicano. <laughs> all right. I don't know. Have you ever seen patient. me? Without, have you ever seen me without a cigar? Not for a whole day. Yeah, no, doesn't happen. All right. Malcolm was is patiently waiting. You've got your hand up. Feel free to unmute yourself and ask us. You had a question about VAs, I think. Maybe you don't have a microphone. So. Question was, could you touch on how you would have a VA approach doing the cold calling for your probate list? The framework that you provided in the training was excellent. I've made some very slight modifications, so my VA handles making the first touch. Talking to the personal rep, once the call has happened, I'll reach out to make the second touch to make sure the meeting isn't double booked and get answers to any missing questions. Do you think there's a flaw in this approach? What I found out is that if you just, I have a VA or someone call an initial call, but they're not going to be as powerful as me on that initial call. They're probably going to get 25% response. Sorry, I went upstairs. So it, to me, I'd rather make that first call, even though I'm on the phone for three hours, I get a hold of probably five or six people. At least I'm getting the maybes or the yeses. I'm getting into the CRM. But the best person, the most committed person I've ever found on an ISA call is somebody with a far, farmer mindset. So someone I could hire to make that follow-up call that I don't want to make and to see where they are and see if they can set an appointment or at least have me call them if they feel like I need to call them again. So I've designed my probate process after initial call, I send my mail. I put them into my CRM and, and it, it communicates with them for almost a year, but it flags us to call every 21 days. Do I have to call? No, I just have a notification and I look at the name and if I think I need to make the call, I make the call. But I think a VA, in my opinion, in my, all the years experience, I think it's best to hire someone to make that bump call just to see where they are. And if they feel like they need they could set an appointment on that call, let's do it. Yeah, of course I wanna set the appointment and get the deal on the first call, I do. But probate, if you're only prospecting probate, 
not expired for sale. But probate's going to be in my market eight months. I have plenty of time to build a relationship up. I have two. I have over 400 leads in my system right now that eventually they're going to sell a house. That's a good job for VA just to bump them and see where they're at. A VA making the initial yep. call, I don't think they're going to get the leverage that I'm going to get on the call because they're not going to ask all those aggressive questions. I'm going to get a little aggressive if I see a maybe there. If there's a no, I'm still going to ask the questions and try to beat the objective, objections and conditions. So somebody you hire off the street for 1300 bucks a month or wherever they're hiring them, they're not going to be aggressive. They're going to be asking, do you have a house to sell? Do you, they're, they're just, they're not going to be there. It's going to take you six months to get them there. So just make the initial call yourself and then get them in your system. That's all. I'm sorry. I got a little aggressive on that. My, my advice is consistent with that. So the one thing I would say is I, I made the mistake early on of trying to train callers like ISAs and virtual assistants to actually do the exact job the same way that we teach in probate mastery. It was overwhelming. And I, I like very few people have the capability of doing that. Now we have done it with cats help, of course, with domestic callers um, and the call center that we but with, especially with offshore VAs, it's incredibly challenging. What I've found to be effective is, and, and if you have to, you know, if you're, if you can't make your calls, Dave is suggesting do it yourself. And I'll agree with that. But if you're just trying to get the dominoes set up so you can come by later and knock them down, what we found is stay superficial. Don't try to take an, a, a, an, a VA or an ISA with a limited skill set. Don't try to take them all the way to closing the deal. Get them to say, you know, Hi, this is Chad Corbin. I'm calling from the office of David Pennell. He's out on an appointment today, but he wanted me to reach out to each family in, in Fort Worth, Texas that has lost a family member and is unfortunately going through probate. We spoke with the clerk. She let us know that your family was in that situation. Could I get you on David's calendar just so he can introduce our services to you so you know what help is available? And it's a simple ask. You're asking, can we provide value to you? And when you get the hand raise, that's when David comes into the picture. And he can do the interview. He can ask those leading questions and have that aggressive response and, and push them out of the, the, you know, pull them out of the probate quicksand. So, the so with VAs, what I've learned is stay, stay superficial, keep it simple and use them to indicate interest or need. And then you do, you use the framework that you learned in session three. So this goes along with that same story that you have that my, mouse that they rescued after 15 minutes. And then they pulled the mouse out, dried them off, and they put them back in there. I mean, it's all over the internet a week or two ago. But when you said it, I, that's the first time I heard it. That's the same thing. If you could get someone to make that call where you're sending a letter to this person because it's a yes or maybe, not an appointment set, or just get them in a CRM, so get an email and a good phone number, check the verified information, and yes, I have a house to sell. That's a $50 bonus to somebody. Now you're taking, now you're taking the deal from like an agent for making a commission on that call, depending on that phone call to make a commission or a whatever, whatever you pay them, reduce it down to a $50 bonus just to get the information correct or get them on your mailing list. Once that hits, you should flag yourself and say, I need to make that phone call because this person needs a call. Then your car li call list goes from a thousand to 20 people. And I guarantee you're going to get one deal out of that every month. Every two months. I don't know what you trained in the course, which you know, I'll say again was you know, spectacular. And I had modified it just because 
I wrote I wrote a few different programs because, you know, I have a programming background. So I wrote a few programs that pulled data from, you know, five or six different counties, pretty much anything that was, that's within a drivable range of me. So, you know, I've got a lot of data. And that was the reason why I wanted to have the VA do the first touches so she can get through the data and just get me to the people who are actually interested in talking to me. But what you just said is, you know, miles different from what I had put together. So I don't know how quickly this recording will be available. Hopefully, you know, if today, awesome. But that was much better than what I had. We're live streaming in Probate Mastery Alumni, our private Facebook group. So you can go watch it, right? You can start back at the beginning. Oh, great. I'll go log in. The, the other thing I want to point you to, your name's not that familiar. I don't know if you've been on the call where we talked about Facebook marketing. If you have a programming background, I'm betting you can figure out how to skip trace that giant list you've built and yeah, come both- up with. I built a skip tracer. I've already got one. Okay. Shocking. So, and do you, so do you have email addresses for those? I've got emails, phone numbers, known relatives, neighbors, age, everything. So what I'd like you to do now is pull that into a saved audience in Facebook and run ads to them on Facebook as well. So just get that brand impression. (laughs) I ran one yesterday. I was shocked at personal best for me. I got 17,000 people to look at a video. 15,000 watched the entire 21 seconds and it cost me one penny each. Wow. So you can make a hell of a brand impression 20, 30 times a day for pennies. If you take that big list, you've got pull it into a saved audience and just run. You never know what's going to be the right combination of copy and creative. And so you don't know until you get the right one. But if you stand in front of the courthouse somewhere where they're, emotionally familiar with because it was you know that was probably scary intimidating uncertain and new when they walked in that courthouse to file for probate that's a pretty good backdrop for a video and then you can do a solid black bar black or white bar above and below with and closed captioning but with a tech background that should be pretty simple work for you if you want to hear that idea fully discussed out Cat might be able to drop a link in the chat right now. Otherwise, we'll hit it in the show notes. We have, we've talked about this in long form several times in the last three or four months, and I won't belabor everybody with a 40-minute explanation, but we'll point you to that where you can hear exactly how to do that step-by-step. Step. But that's the other thing I'd like to see you do to, to just shorten your list and get to the hand raises faster since you have such a, a high number of leads you're, you're backed up on. I appreciate that. That was worth the price of admission alone. Hey, hey Chad, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Hey, back to Dave, his point with his virtual assistants and have a little trouble. One of the things that I've been working with is, you know, basically bringing on partners. You know, they, they some of my students, like, you know, they feel like they need a little bit of handholding. So what I do is I partner with them. If they go out and they find the deals and this could work with Dave, you know, I think really is he could do like a buy-in to a partnership. So you start them out, okay, you know, here's these, I'm gonna provide you all this. I want you to get all this training, you know, start working this, you know, I'll cut you in on a portion of the deal. And as you get more experience, you get a bigger portion all the way up to, let's just say, you know, 49% of the deal. So instead of worrying about the virtual assistants not being able to, you know, they're not as motivated as somebody who is actually going to be part of the deal. I mean, does that make any sense? 
It does. Yeah, so I, you're proposing yeah. basically just uh, probate bird dogs that become limited partners. And I think that's the important thing here is they're an LP, not a GP. Right. Really, it's a great idea and a way to, to scale up. There's just some proof of that, that model. Chris Chico used to sell wholesaling courses and do coaching. He quit on that completely because he saw the same need that you're talking about, Gary, like guys are either afraid or they just never get into a position where they take action on their own deal. But what he found is he could motivate those guys and girls to take action on with his cash. They had no problem, you know, and it was all hypothetical risk because there were out clauses in every wholesale contract. But he actually shifted his business model where he never had to leave his office. He worked maybe two days a week and made more money than he ever made as an investor because he was working smart. So it was, it's the, you know, work less, earn more, do good. So he was through mentorship. He was able to build an army of guys that just hammered the phones and paid for their own direct mail and beat the streets and pounded doors and drove for dollars. And they would bring it back to him and say, look what we caught. Now, what, what are you going to do with it? And then he would either wholesale it, flip it, re retail it, wholesale it. But he got to choose the disposition strategy. He was the general partner. They were the limited partner. And he was, you know, making more money than he ever made and working less than he ever had. So for those of you who, you know, if you've got a stable deal flow and you feel like you, you could do more if there were more of you, what Gary's proposing is go find those folks and mentor them for equity. Yeah, I think, you know, J.D. Rockefeller... You know, he thought the government ripped him off tremendously when they made him, when he had a monopoly on the oil business, the government said, hey, you have to cut that up. You know, you can no longer have that, but you get 25% of Shell, American, Exxon. You know, he ended up 100,000 times better than he would have ever been had he been, you know, the whole thing. So sometimes it's, you know, it's, it, it pays to share. I mean, it really does. I, I think that's a great way to go about it. I mean, I, I love these people. They're running around. They call me all the time. Hey, I got this lead. What is it? You know, and, you know, I'm working with them on the training and, you know, I'm going to be making the money and I'm not even doing anything. I'm just, you know, they're out beating the streets right now. And I just talk to them once a week. If that. You not doing anything. That's shocking, what? Gary. No, yeah. you. I'm cutting on Gary because he lives he's living his best life, but he worked his ass off to get into that position. So, Rosie, I just Gary. saw your hand up. Sorry, I don't, I don't know how long you've been waiting. Oh, yeah, no. we're gonna we're gonna make da we're gonna make David unemployable soon. Like he's gonna be in an RV tagging along. <laughs> no, I was just uh, having thoughts after Gary's conversation. He's absolutely right about partnering up with people because you can pay people less and. It's an illusion that we are getting more, but we are applying more time too. You know, initially when I started with Probate Group, I started being very active with, <clears throat> active with Investor Group and I was originally bringing them the, and uh, this that I was just talking about, half an acre lot and all the good stuff, an investor brought it to me and he said, look, we had fun working on last two deals. I just want to work all the deals with you, you know, because he leveraged off things that I don't want to do. And he literally is a great connector, you know, has resources everywhere and has construction background. And I understand real estate market pricing and all that stuff. Uh, we're doing fifth deal together. And it just started with just one time partnering up on something and really, you know, giving in. So I would, even if I could, I wouldn't do without partnership because it's more fun that way if you find right people. You don't have to share this if you don't want them putting you on the spot. But if you don't mind sharing, tell us how you handle your partnership structure. 
how the operating agreement is written, how the shares are allocated. And yes. if you've ever had any problems or if it's a really good structure for you. I, I don't think I have had any problems yet and I don't take it for granted either. Of course, I trust the process, but I verify it. And so we actually have a real estate attorney who draws up our joint venture agreement. So when we are working on a deal. So just so, just so we, so you have two LLCs, two separate entities, yes. Rosie LLC and Joe LLC. Yes. Those LLCs sign a joint venture agreement. To acquire the property. Right. And then that, that entity is what's on the purchase agreement. That's right. That's right. And this is completely independent of my retail real estate business. When I am buying the property, I am the disclosure of the property. And sometimes, quite frankly, this last deal that I did, he had actually bought the property already and was not sure what to do with it. And he literally, journal warranty did the 50% share to strategize the deal with me and this is what we were, I think it was Donna two weeks ago, we were talking about this exact structure and I proposed that, you know, ease in because it sounded like there might've been some inequities in the partner she had chosen. Like she yeah. was going to end up with the most experience doing the most amount of work. But what I like about the structure and that's what I proposed for her rather than jumping in and putting everybody on the same operating agreement. You know, people have spouses, people have yeah. cars and drinking habits, and they bring lots of liability with them. So when their name is on the operating agreement with you, if they get divorced, if they get into it, if they get a DUI, you know, kill somebody drunk driving, or they get themselves into hot water, that bleeds into your portfolio yeah, now. That's and that's enough. why this, this individual LLC with a joint venture structure is a much, much safer and more affordable yeah. way to actually do these deals. So while we're talking- part Yeah. And oftentimes people get confused. They're like, you know what? I don't know if I can do this, how much I'm going to pay an attorney. If you get in touch with the right resources, there are a bunch of investors out there who are already doing it, right? And uh, you work with a right, right real estate attorney, he's not going to charge you an arm and leg. I think uh, on simple deals, we pay five to 700 bucks at closing and sometimes $1,500 if it's more detailed, but it's a very clean cut. I tend not to do long-term buy and hold in joint LLCs because refinancing and all that thing can be, I normally own my rentals by myself, but it's more of assignments and flips or maybe a short-term hold because there's a tenant in place. We have to honor the lease until they move out. So those kind of deals, I do joint venture agreement with real estate attorney. And it's a very simple process. It's not complicated. Matter of fact, it's peace of mind for both parties. You know, you don't want to be personally involved in the business. Yeah. Absolutely. And so one thing to consider, Rosie, as you go forward, I mean, I think you said it was $500 is what your, your fee is, or five to 700. A lot of times a good probated, or excuse me, a good real estate attorney who who is, you know, also acting as the escrow company, the closing, the closing attorney, you know, they're going to make their money on the back end and they're going to make their money on volume when they work with people like you. So yes. a lot of times they won't even charge you for that legal work. You bring the partner in you sit down, you know, and sit down and just paper it real quick and be like, all right, man, we'll settle up whenever this one closes. And yeah. they're happy to do that work. I, I, it's, I mean, I, I've had, there's so many times where I just wait for an attorney's invoice. I'm like, is he going to charge me for that? Is that going to come? Is the other shoe going to drop? Never shows up. Right. Loyalty by putting the deals back through his firm for the closing. So he, he never invoices me for the legal work. I'm going to have to consider that with this attorney because he does close our investment deals too. And I'm just like, yeah. you know, I am like barely new in this group and I'm just testing everyone, like how they are, what is the, how deep they're in the waters, who's really pro prominent in their work. 
But one way I did utilize his help really is that I got him to take $6,800 off an HOA lien because, you know, those trustees, they don't answer me. I'm just a realtor, right? What the hell, right? And I got their turn. Damn it, Rosie. What did you just say? Go back five phone calls. Did you just say, I'm just a realtor? Damn hashtag. He did cash on pretty good attention. So I think brain. Because investors are like, huh? Huh? Okay. I was like, yeah. I got your attention now. So I love it, actually. I'm so glad you shared it. I completely forgot what I was saying before, but we're in agreement. Sorry, I took us down a rabbit hole. Get back on track. Whatever we were talking about, that that's right. Yeah. All right. We have five minutes left, guys. I do have a hard stop today. Uh, I don't see any questions we haven't answered. Does anybody have anything else they want to share? Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so I'm doing short sales and I'm doing it the leveraged way where I have a short sale negotiator, investor has a troubled seller and let's see if we can do a short sale on it, right? I just tried it to see, you know, if it works and it's working, I'm closing three, four deals. How do I pick momentum at it? And I want to do it in a very leveraged way. And uh, where it means there's a short sale negotiator in it, you know, like they handle all the paperwork. I just, I want to set up a portion of my business where this continuously just comes in and just runs as a short sale management section of the team. So how do I run that? I've been waiting to, I've been waiting to make this course for like damn near a decade. This is how I cracked into residential real estate and it is fish in a barrel mm. because these folks are hopeless. The hard part is getting them on the phone. 71% of foreclosures in the last housing crisis never spoke to a single professional. Mm. Like surveyed post foreclosure, they were surveyed by, by a third party and 71% were too embarrassed to reach out for help. They didn't call the lender. They didn't call a realtor. They didn't put a for sale sign in the yard. They just emotionally shut down and their ego said, nope, this does, this isn't happening. This isn't happening. And they, they, they get confused. They don't even know what short sale is because bankruptcy lawyers are calling them. Realtors are calling right. them. Investors are calling them. God is calling them. They're confused. They don't know. It's scoped out and it's in a mind map. There's a magic question, but you know, would you like to keep the home or sell the home? And we know the answer is always going to be, we want to keep it. It's our home. So, and we'll go down that rabbit hole with them. And actually, let me, this is worth, uh, I'm going to be late for my next call because I want to show you and we can spend some more time on it maybe on, on the next call. I expanded on the mind map that I, that I built that kind of shows you how my brain works when I'm doing a deal. And this is a really good example of, I cleared the cache on my computer that I have to log back into anything. I have. Bad idea. Yeah, as we're sitting here for dead space, my guy just, he just uh, scheduled me appointment for probate. They want to sell today. So I guess I'll be doing that tonight. All right. I got to call him back and see, but. Hey, Chad, since we're in dead space, I had two questions. I just got this up. I'll come, I'll come right back to you. Sorry. Okay. So Rosie, here is how I handle this. And so the conversation path is, is there real estate? Yes or no? If there's yeah. no, then we can find a way to refer them. Yeah, if yes, then is there a motivation to sell? Would you like to sell the home or keep the home? So let's say if they want to sell the home, yes, we go this way. But if it's no, we don't. Is there debt? Yes, there is debt. Our payment's current? No. Then we have a strategy for these. We, we have to empathetically and calmly lead them through an emotional conversation. We know what our line of logic is. We know that loan mod, bankruptcy, Mm -hmm. or a short sale or a buy and a lease back are pretty much their only option if, if they want to, oh, excuse me, if they're willing to, and there is debt and the debts are not current, mm -hmm. then here are all the options for every one of those people. 
So from this branch, no, there's equity, yes or no. no. If there's not the kernel payment, there is no equity, then we establish a target date. So we've got, we can turn it into a rental and get them the heck out of it. We can short sale it, or we can use limited creative financing options. But for that phone call, we have one, two, three, four, five, six tactics that we can talk about. But we're slowly going to follow the branches in this conversation so they don't feel like they were told what to do or, or a strategy was forced upon them. Yeah. So the idea is to, and what I would recommend for you, my friend Aaron owns Roddy's auction service in Texas. So they have, they pre-foreclosure data two weeks before any company in, this, in, in the country. They have a proprietary way and relationships in, this, in the entire state of Texas. They're based right, well, you actually, you know, Aaron, I've, put, I've connected you guys. Right? Yes. F, FLS online, I think is is what the, so anyway, you yes, can get that's the that's online that I am aware of. It. That's one of the very major ones in Texas. Yeah, so if you get the FLS list and you use this approach where you call each other and say, listen, I know you're bound to be getting bombarded. This is a call from a social enterprise. We reach out to everyone every time we see they're in this situation because we've been able to help so many people. Have you got five minutes to see if I can stop the call? All right. Mm -hmm. So I just have one question for you. I mean, obviously you're behind. I don't need to embarrass you and ask questions and all that. You can share as much as you want with me. All I need to know is, would you rather me help you keep your home or help you get this sold and move on and then go from there? And um, a lot of times they, you know, they're going to say, oh, we're, we're going to stay here. Okay, great. So we've got some options. If, if you want to keep the home, do you need to live in it? Or do you have somewhere else that you could live? No, we need to live here. It's not a rental property. Okay. Or, you know, do you have a lot of other assets? Is, is bankruptcy something you would consider? Yeah. No, we, we don't, you know, a lot of times they don't want to do bankruptcy because it bleeds over into many other assets. And you just eliminate one option at a time until the short sale stands as the clear best choice. Yeah. They're gonna they're going to take a sixty to eighty point hit on their FICO, but they're gonna they're gonna basically be, be released of legal liability, and they're not gonna have to lift a finger. You do everything, and you yeah. get it. You get a you know you're gonna have a, a limited power of attorney. So you slowly walk them through those choices without overwhelming them with you know you obviously wouldn't show them something like this. But you can walk them through those choices where they basically have to, there's only one option. Mm-hmm. And with leadership, they'll get to that conclusion very quickly, usually in a, in a 30 minute conversation or less. Mm-hmm. Without leadership, good. they'll yeah. go for 12 months until the sheriff throws them out on their ass. No, it's really good. They do take a long time to close, but it's a pretty effortless process once you get all the paperwork going. And I actually did a short sale on a probate. It was heirs losing the property to foreclosure. Yeah, we just closed it last month. And yep. uh, I'm very encouraged on how effortless this process is. If, like, how important it is to have a great short sale negotiator person on the team. I'm pretty happy with what I have, but I don't know if it's a key determining factor. What is it like major difference between one over the other or what I should be looking for? I'm just taking what I have in hand right now, but I would like to make sure I have all the right pieces in place to keep it going. So if you look at for sale by uh, for rent by owners, look at Craigslist, look at Facebook Marketplace. If it's in a residential neighborhood, like a good school system, and there's no furniture in the picture, you probably got yourself a short sale. If you get the pre-foreclosure list, you probably have yourself a short sale. Talk to every lender you can. And I mean, every damn lender you can possibly get in front of and say, when you have to decline somebody for a refinance, 
send them to me mm-hmm. and you like you for a free consultation. And even if you do that with the real estate attorney who's serving you so well, offer a free phone call with you and a real estate attorney to discuss, just to discuss and discover the options for somebody who's declined on a refi. Because one of the, the canary in the mind, as one of the canaries in the mind, if somebody is trying to refinance and they get declined, they're in financial trouble already. Yeah, they've really, gotten yeah. the refi. So those are junk leads to mortgage lenders. But if you can get those junk leads and then bring the buyer back to that mortgage lender and convince the buyer's agent, or if you're double in, convince them to use that lender because he's already familiar with the house and already familiar with the case. And it'll be way more efficient than using fucking rocket mortgage. Then you can repay him by creating a cycle of referrals. He refers the business he can't do to you. You go turn that lemon into a glass of lemonade, pour a shot of vodka in it, and hand it back to it. And all these loan officers I work with who lend to uh, at a large scale to my buyers, are these the right contact or I need to be reaching for someone else? I don't know. Anyone who's doing refi. Okay, so if, anytime they decline, anytime that, that they have to decline a refi, that should be a lead to your business. And yeah. then you, the agreement should be, you know, you turn that lemon into lemonade and then put it back their way so they can do the acquisition yeah. fine. Yeah. And you can get one of your investors to put an offer on it. If you're running close to the short sale, you can get your investors to submit offers and there's whole new opportunity after that. Yeah. All right, that was my process. We would upload the MLS within five minutes. I would have yeah. an offer submitted. Submit. We would submit that to the, you know, to the asset manager and it would yeah. stop the foreclosure in its track. It would go from this That's division right. of the bank to the whole, to the special assets division. And we stopped the clock, like we threw the brakes on. What about so divorce I, leads? So you can't, there, there's no list that you can buy. There are some people that claim to have it, but they're selling it based on decree, not on filing. So it's a useless list because the divorce is over. The way to do this is organically. So you do this by networking with divorce attorneys. They're not, okay. you know, if you get to know counselors, you can, but there's laws around that, HEPA, around marriage counselors. Lenders are, are can sometimes get you into divorce leads as well, because when they come in to try to refi in one person's name, that's a leading indicator to divorce. But the best way is just organically find ways to provide value to divorce attorneys. And, you know, with probate, we like with estate planning attorneys, we bring them in and say, Hey, here's a referral. This person needs an estate plan. It's unlikely we're going to go get one of our friends and be like, Hey man, can you divorce your wife so I can meet this attorney? Like, Hey, this is my friend, Jim. He's going to get divorced next week. Cause I really wanted to meet you and see if I can get some referrals. Like that, that one's probably not going to work. Right. So we've got to find ways to provide value to these, these divorce attorneys to help them through their own small business struggles. So they'll help us with ours. Right. So bringing them referrals probably isn't feasible in the divorce. But what we can do is find ways to make the business they already have more efficient, give them a platform. So if we create that community Facebook group, you know, for life transitions, we have a divorce attorney in there talking about it. Or maybe we create a separate, you know, a divorce support group, the, the Dallas-Fort Worth divorce support group, where every Wednesday night you meet and that attorney, you have an attorney, you have a counselor. You have people who can help families that are in that space. They find you can target them. I, I, I can build a Facebook audience in seconds that will show you everyone who's currently in the process of being divorced. And that's all the way back to the very beginning of my statement. I just contradicted myself. So I can show you how to do that. But there's not a company where you buy a list, but it's organically. So find ways to help them help those firms be more efficient and 
the main way is, is by keeping the level of canal on each of their cases. And we can do that by being an intermediary. So we can create, we can be the bridge, the peace bridge between the husband and the divorcing parties and help the firm get away from all the, the, the back and forth about the real estate and negotiating. Every single conversation has to be A, party B, party C. If we can be a trusted intermediary that they can trust that we're not going to get in the way of their legal process and they're not going to get in the way of our sales process, that's the way to do it. A friend of mine, Kelly, Dr. Kelly, has a course. And uh, just like Gary, I don't have an affiliation, but I, I trust her, trust that she's the top expert in the country. It's divorcethishouse.com. And she is a Ivy League educated divorce attorney who's also a staff professor at Vanderbilt. And she trains live, I think, three times a month. But uh, that's a really good system. And it's very similar to our approach on probate mastery. That's the reason I've never made the divorce course, because she's already done it. And she's not somebody I, you know, I just don't care to compete with her. I'll support her. So if you want to take a deep dive on that, it's uh, divorcethishouse.com. And... We're nine minutes over. Balcom, I'm not going to leave you hanging, man. So go ahead and unmute. I appreciate that. It was a two-parter, but I think you already answered it because, you know, don't take this the wrong way. Please don't get mad at me. You know, you're filming the video and I just happened to see one of the folders for Pro Foreclosure Master. I was like, oh, crap. Okay. Maybe maybe he's dropping something on that. The second question was, and hopefully it's not too long. So in the parsers that I created, I've got a lot of data that comes back. Some of the cases are coming back pro se, and I would say roughly maybe 65 to 70% are coming back with people that have an attorney. And I was just wondering, you know, what your approach would be if the majority of the data that you got that, you know, that came back were people that already had an attorney for their case. Cause pretty much what I'm trying to do is trying to find a way to provide value with the estate planning attorneys that I've built relationships with here. And if a lot of the cases that I'm getting back are coming back, you know, the opposite of pro se, I just wonder, you know, what, you know, what you would do in that, situation so you have a high percentage already like in most markets 80 percent have, have retained an attorney 20 percent are pro se so it sounds like you have 40 percent pro se already right give or take i'd say yeah okay so let's find ways to turn those into referrals and then the trusted relationships let's go to those attorneys who you want to build a relationship with sit down build a checklist that is the you know allegan county probate checklist so from the day that somebody passes away or the day after the funeral, all the way through until the final distribution hit the heir's bank account, what are each and every one of those little tasks? Anything that requires an attorney that the legal task is colored red, everything else is a different color, black or blue or green. At the bottom of that in the footer, you've got the attorney's firm name, the attorney's name, the firm name, the address, phone number, website, whatever they want. You're going to offer... In, in exchange for them helping you create to create this piece, you're going to put one in every every direct mail piece that you send to these families, and you are legally helping them circumvent an anti-solicitation law to earn business for their firm. So they will be happy to help you with this. Okay. You should they should see immediate business from it. Your letter is going. You're, you'll change your letter up where it says, you know, on the back of this letter, you're going to find a probate checklist. I did notice that you know we reach out to every family and in the county each month one thing that's a little bit alarming to me that i noticed is there's no attorney of record on this probate 
And if you flip this letter over and look at this checklist, everything in red is all the all the personal liability you're absorbing as the personal representative. What a lot of people don't realize is personal representatives are fiduciaries, and that does come with legal responsibility and legal liability. So if there's any way we can help you, please call us or call the firm on the, on the back of this sheet and something along those lines. So you write a letter that, that educates them and then stirs up a little bit of fear. And then the call to action is call me or call the attorney. Those attorneys will respect the hell out of you unless they've been on this call. No one in your market's ever done that. And that'll get you some referrals and some relationships generate, like generated very quickly. I am going to run and get to the next disappointed person who's 13 minutes, been sitting there twiddling their thumbs for 13 minutes. But uh, this is such a fun conversation. We got a lot of good stuff today. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for always keeping it interesting. And we will see you next week. Have a great day. Thanks, Gary.